Hi, my name is Chris Winder, and you're listening to Through a Scientist's Eyes, a weekly exploration of how science gets done and how it really affects your real life. What I want to do is really focus on mRNA, how it gets made, how we regulate it, and how do we know what we know that allowed scientists to have the confidence to try and hijack that machinery in order to make the COVID vaccines that you're seeing now. Um, but I think it's important to start at the beginning, similar to what we talked about last time. Um, this is really going to be about the basics and the quote unquote sausage making of science and, and really go pretty deep into the iceberg. Um, and we have to start at the beginning and that beginning is what is a gene? Well, this is where it gets complicated and what I'm going to do over the course of this conversation is give you a little bit of understanding of what's a gene and really talk about um, how the definition from a scientist's perspective has kind of changed over the last 50 years with a real acceleration in the last 20, 25 years. Um, as the technology got better, as our ability to, to build on the platform that was built by a Watson and Crick, uh, Rosalind Franklin, uh, all these other pioneers who, who let us understand DNA and RNA and all these other pieces that really brought us to the point where now where we can start to use that technology to do really interesting and and in some ways unimaginable things that would, we wouldn't have even considered 20 years ago in immunology and cancer biology and all these other areas. There's this underlying layer of biology that, that connects all these different places that allows us to finally see this synergism and this expansion of, of what we can do with these technologies. And, and there is an interconnectedness between those things, um, but there's also some independence and some you know, trial and error that had to be done in different subjects, vaccine biology, immunology, cancer biology, that takes advantage of this basic biology. Again, going back to that concept that what we, what we want to focus on is everything underneath the, the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. And that tip of the iceberg being what we see in our actual medical community today. So cancer biology, cancer treatments, um, vaccines, and these other places have this underlying layer which allows the scientists and the and pharma and the doctors to have confidence in what we're, in what's being presented as a treatment or a vaccine that's hard to explain because it's 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 not clear it's not it's not a a led to b led to c it's a led to z which allowed us to understand that there might be a, a you know 25 letters between it and that's how we got here and so, you know, as we start talking about the what is a gene, we have to start where we began. So what we thought was a gene 25, 30 years ago is not kind of what is kind of not what we think of as a gene nowadays. What we think of as a gene nowadays is more than the more than just the protein. So when I talked last time, and if you've had a chance to look at the blog or any of the images, I, I kind of glossed over some some facts. So I, I've made it seem in those images, and, and again, I'm building on those, is that you have a DNA, which leads to an mRNA, which leads to a protein. It's not 100% true, 
but if we if we take it back a level there's a direct connection between the amino acids that are in a protein and the the codons or the triplicate code that we talked about that led to that protein so we had that translation piece and we'll talk about that in a different episode what I want to go back is a layer back from there so how do we make an mRNA and that's a really loaded question because what we know is that an MR what we know nowadays is that an mRNA is not just the part that makes a protein and the way we know this is a bunch of experiments that were done kind of in the 70s and 80s or some done in the 60s some done in the 90s and what we could do what we could do at that point particularly in the 90s is you could you could translate backwards on paper and so again a lot of this was still done on paper um, and I've actually literally done this where you're on paper and you're looking at the protein code and you're you're writing out a three digit three letter RNA code and then you send that off to get made into a piece of DNA and what we can do with that piece of DNA is we can basically what we call electroporation so we can zap a cell and we can put it into the cell and then we can see if it makes a protein and if it makes a protein it's an mRNA it's kind of it was that simple once we started getting better at the technology we could see that depending on how we made the mRNA it was better or worse it made more protein or less protein so people started ah we were we're tapping into the machinery for gene expression what we started to understand as the genomic sequencing and the G Human Genome Project got better and as individual scientists started looking at bigger chunks of DNA and the technology for doing these electroporations got better is that there was this region which we didn't consider mRNA we considered kind of junk RNA or the the just the sloppiness of the machinery was actually vital vitally important to how we express genes how much how many copies we make of everything and these regions because scientists at their core are are descriptive animals um, got called UTRs and UTR literally stands for untranslated region so you have one at the beginning and you have one at the end and these are used for a bunch of reasons one of the reasons that's that's important to this conversation is it's part of the gene regulation machinery it's part of how we decide how many levels we need how many copies of that do we need so the more com and we do this by having more complex and where ways that we can add protein to the mRNA at the edges so not affecting the mRNA and the ability to read that mRNA but making it harder or easier for that to get into the translation machinery and also get, making it harder or easier to get out of the nucleus and so we have all these kind of time to travel kind of parts of gene expression and and as we go through this you'll see that there's these layers that allow us to have this really tight control of exactly how many copies you make because you have these overlapping and very different types of trans of of regulation so once we once we go back a step further than that let's we're really talking about you know we've made the mRNA plus its UTRs on both ends of some type we had to make that from something and we use a, a machine in the cell called RNA polymerase um, and what it does again scientists are descriptive animals RNA polymerase what it does is it polymerases or makes a poly RNA so it takes one RNA and connects it to another one connects it to another one and that's how we make an an mRNA what it also does is it trans 
transcribes from the DNA. So it, it, it takes an exact copy. It doesn't just do this willy-nilly in the cell. It can only do this when it's attached to DNA and it can read a strand of DNA, the, the ATG or the CAG or whatever the, the combination of triplicate is. That's when it can make an mRNA. Whole lot of biology there. Um, really deep subject uh, and, and kind of one of my personal favorites because I was intimately involved with that research. Um, and I worked for and was mentored by people who are some of the, the people who did the original work in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, I worked with Ramin Shikater and, and Nat Heintz who had worked with Bob Tijen and Bob Rader. Um, some of the, the initial lights who'd really come up with, with some of the fascinating technology and, and principles and theories that let us know how RNA polymerase works. And the way that I'm going to describe a lot of this, you know, we're all, we're all a, a subject of our biases, is largely going to be through that, that lens. Um, so when I say a subject of our biases, it's basically how we're trained. Does that mean that I discount anything that doesn't fit into that worldview? No. But what it means is that my, my experimental view and my view as a skeptic is based off of what I've already, what I've seen with my own eyes to be true. And what I do is I'm continually assuming that I'm wrong. That's what good scientists do. Um, they assume they're wrong, and so every time they do an experiment, whether it's one of these experiments that's taking pictures and then comparing two pictures, or whether it's really complicated bioinformatics or anything else, they're always asking, how did I screw this up? Um, they might ask it slightly different, but that was the way I always asked it, was how did I screw this up? And if you can go through a checklist of how the experiment could have gone wrong, and you can't think of ways that made it go wrong, then you can start to believe the results. That's what good science is. It's, it's assuming you made all kinds of mistakes and then doing the checklist to make sure you didn't make those mistakes. Um, you, have to think, you have to think of what could have gone wrong. You have to be able to, to define the things that could have gone wrong to make an experiment not correct or not valid. Um, and that little tangent is, is one of the interesting stories that of how we find new discoveries is because you get to that point where you're like, huh, son of a bitch. I was wrong, but this is why I was wrong is because the biology is totally different than what we thought. And this is how we got to that point where, you know, after we figured out, as we were looking at the human genome, we were realizing how much extra stuff and the junk DNA, and this is how, and this connected and gave the aha moments that turned into an understanding that the UTRs, these untranslated regions, were valuable. But then that made us rethink what is a gene? It made us rethink how, how much of this other stuff and where is it? And what you found out is that it was these UTRs wouldn't necessarily be right beside the gene. They might be, you know, a distance away up in front or behind. And that was because you had another layer of regulation of gene, and again, you're, you're, you should be sensing a, a, a thematic here of we regulate how much, whether the RNA polymerase has access to a gene by distance from the UTRs in the genome, so you have 
your UTR, and then you might have a space, and then you'll have the actual mRNA, the gene coding area. And what you do is you pack that with, with not necessarily nonsense DNA, but DNA that isn't directly turned into an mRNA, which allows you to slow down the machinery because it's got to slog through that. And that's another layer that, again, so we have the UTRs and we have the, the non-coding DNA, which slows down the process of making an mRNA. And then as we we're doing that, we started to realize that we still don't know how the hairy heck you, you access this. And, and this was some really cool experiments where basically um, through a lot of work, people were able to purify RNA polymerase. So RNA polymerase is a huge enzyme that has multiple proteins. So it's not just one protein that's RNA polymerase. It's a set of proteins um, that connect all together. And only when they're connected together do they actually function as RNA polymerase. And this was done through a series of, of protein experiments where they purified out RNA polymerase. Um, a lot of work. Uh, I won't go into details, but you could purify that out. And because we could create synthetic DNA at this point, you could take, in a dish, you could take RNA polymerase plus DNA, and you can make that DNA an exact match for the UTR plus plus the the coding region. So you could make RNA, and you could make it in, you could make it in a a test tube, a, a, what we call in vitro. So you could do in vitro transcription. And what we found is that as you started to know the human genome and you started to throw in the other parts, RNA polymerase got worse at its job. And then when we found, then some really smart experiments, some really interesting experiments were done where, where when the technology got better and we could separate out all the DNA from an actual cell and we could separate it out in quote unquote a native rather than having to use synthetic DNA you find that RNA polymerase just didn't work. And so there was a lot of back and forth on, well, is RNA polymerase actually RNA polymerase? And what they found out is that we always had this hint, and, and if you've ever seen a cell biology textbook, anytime they talk about DNA, you realize it's not one, and they give you those numbers, and I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but I was guilty of it myself. You, get, you give out these numbers of there's 2 meters of DNA into 10 microns of, of, of space in a nucleus. And, and then, we, then we, totally jump, we totally jump over, over everything in between. And we say, oh, and there's 46 chromosomes. We never, we hardly ever, and, and I'm sure there's very good teachers out here who did that. And I apologize to my students for my 400 class. Um, back when I was a professor, I never did a good job of connecting the two. Um, it took conversations with my own 10-year-old and 8-year-old to really make me understand how much of a gap there was in that knowledge base um, because I just knew it, right? It just was logical because... But the reason we have 46 chromosomes is so that we can fit the whole genome, every gene that we have, into the nucleus. Because we can now, we now have it in segments that we can, we can kind of, you know, it's the, the, you could call it the Tetris model, where we're now trying to fit all that into, us, into the nucleus. But what we didn't understand is when we were looking at that, what we were looking at. So we had this idea that you have this nucleus, which is 
an independent ball within the cell. So it's got its own membrane that protects it from the rest of it. So what we could do is we could do experiments where you could break the cell membrane and separate out the nucleus, the intact nucleus. And you could do that through centrifugation. So the idea of spin, you spin it fast enough that the different things of different weights end up in different places. So the heaviest things ended up at the bottom. So if you think about this, if you took a, a vial of liquid with oil and water, you always get that separation. That's because they have different weights. There's some hydrophobics and whatnot in there as well, some polarity and magnetism in there as well. But the basis is there's different weights to that. Water is a lot lighter than oil. And so they separate out into a top layer and a bottom layer. Similar with this, where the nucleus, <clears throat> because it's still all intact, it's, it's considered one object, where, where, whereas all the other proteins are gonna be at the top. Um, so once you have that, you can separate out the nucleuses, you can decant all the other liquid that's outside the nucleus, and then you can basically do the same thing again. You can break the, the nuclear membrane, you end up with the nucleus plus the other stuff. And so what that other stuff is, is the DNA. The DNA plus the proteins that are tightly associated with it. Because um, going back to that, that comment I made about, po about polarity and magnetism, a lot of that resides within the DNA. So DNA itself is a polarized molecule, which means that similar to a magnet, if you take the north end and the north end of a magnet and try and touch them together, they'll repulse each other. So DNA has that. And going back to the, the, the protein part of chromosomes and chromatin, these terms that you may have heard, what chromosomes are is the protein plus the DNA. Now, again, to get it all into the nucleus, we we cut the D, the your whole genome into forty six chunks. Right, each one of these chunks is relatively close to the same. Um, the differences don't matter for the purpose of this conversation. Um, the only more obvious one are the sex chromosomes, because in a in a the female sex chromosome or an X is a full X, and the male one is shorter. It's a Y, which isn't really a Y. It's more of a V. But I digress. Um, when we look at what a chromosome is, it got that name be from chromatin, which was this thing that we found experimentally when we did that, that separation experiment. And you got the snot ball at the bottom. Um, and the, the best way I can explain it is um, there's an experiment, and you can find it on YouTube, and I'll have a link in here, where you can do, yeah, you take either a strawberry or banana, and you add salt, soap, and water and crush them all together and then you add ice cold isopropyl alcohol and you'll separate separate out this snot like thing in the bottom that's chromatin we call it dna but it's actually the dna plus the proteins that that coat the dna that allow it to to exist in a in a cell so what we what you can do is once you have that snot like thing if you have a powerful enough microscope is you can look at that that chromatin, that chromosome, you can look at a single chromosome, and what it looks like in the when you have it in that kind of form where you've broken it out and you've kind of disrupted all its natural connections to the nucleus and everything and everything else it's connected to normally, is you get you get this what we call beads on a string. So I don't know for those of you who went to university and took uh, 
biology, you might have seen or saw that quote of beads on a string, and then you'll see the cute little singular diagram where you have beads on a string, which then turns into chromatin, which then turns into a chromosome. That's kind of what we're talking about, but the chromatin itself is really the, the, the beads on a string. Through a series of experiments where basically they took the, the beads on a string and they tried to cut in between and then separate it all out, what we found is that um, what chromatin is, is a, the, the beads itself are the actual protein and the string is the DNA. And so what that allows you to do is it gives you these, these pockets of, of southern poles. So again, sticking with the magnet. So the beads act like southern poles to the DNA's northern poles. So then you can connect them together. And I don't know if you've ever seen it on uh, YouTube but you have these uh, magnetic sticks in the balls and you can, you, there's, a, there's this one video that, my, that I've seen that's really cool where the, you, you take a magnetic stick and you put it into the, this group of iron balls and you pull up and you get the grouping of, of balls. Very similar to the beads on a string, right? They're all connected and because they're polarized you can now connect them which is great for, for how do we pack this into, it answers the question of how do we pack this into the nucleus. Problem that is that it gives us a whole new set of problems when we're talking about how do you, how do you regulate a gene. Because as I mentioned earlier, RNA polymerase can't actually contact the DNA when it's in this bead on a string or chromatin structure. So when it's part of the chromatin structure, which is its natural way that you would find it in a, in a normal nucleus, so there's no freestanding free DNA, it can't actually access it, which causes all kinds of problems, um, but gives us um, all kinds of opportunities for additional layers of regulation. So again, going back to that Swiss cheese model, where we have a layer at the UTR, and we have a layer on how fast you you transport them, and we have a layer on the, the DNA itself, where we have um, chunks of DNA in between the the UTR and the coding region, which RNA polymerase has to read through. Now we're another layer down, right? We have these proteins which block it from even being able to connect to the DNA. And so this allows us to have the ability to look at how we turn genes on and off. And this is where we get into a subject which um, has started to filter up from the scientific world. Um, back when I was actually a bench scientist, we were one of the groups that first found some of the enzymes that, that, that kind of modified the beads on, beads on a string so the beads could slide, so you could access parts of DNA. Um, the term that I'm talking about is epigenetics. It's this idea of how do we modulate genes. And really all it is is how do we modulate the, protein, the beads so that we have longer string parts of string so RNA can work, RNA polymerase can work better. Lots of interesting things there. The important thing about epigenetics is it's part of, it's real importance is on, on how we pattern a cell. So for example, during developmental biology, when we're making a brain, we have to go from cell that doesn't know what it is to cell that is designed to do a single job every day without fail, without kind of deciding one day it's going to do a different job. It just doesn't have the option of not doing its job. And that's a process. And 
we have to remember that in every cell we have every gene to do every job. Um, in every brain cell, there's the, all the parts that you need to do the job of a muscle cell. Really important, it doesn't, it doesn't decide that it wants to be a muscle cell in the middle of being a brain cell. Once it's already decided it's a brain cell, it's got to stay a brain cell. So one of the things that we do is we shut off all the muscle cells. And we do that and we take advantage of the beads on a string. We take advantage of the chromatin structure. And basically, you know, as I mentioned before, because the beads are polarized, they connect to each other. And what we can do is we can kind of permanize these, these connections. We can, for lack of a better term, wield the beads together. And then that part of the chromosome is sealed off from the cell. So we do this, that's actually part of development is, is deciding what areas we're gonna seal off. Um, development of a organ like the brain is more a series of decisions of what I'm not going to be allowed to do than it is decisions of what I want to do. So you, you progressively decide, I, I'm not gonna make this, I'm not gonna make a muscle cell thing. I'm not gonna make a lung cell thing. I'm not gonna make an immune, immune cell thing. I'm gonna stick with these things, which might be brain and liver. It seems random, but it's actually, there's, there's some relationship between some of those genes. Um, and then you're gonna decide, well, I'm not gonna make liver cells. I'm not gonna make liver genes anymore. I'm only gonna make these types of genes so that you can you're you know kind of stick to your knitting it's important for the organism for the body for you as a person that your brain cells stay brain cells um, obviously there's a lot of diseases where where that doesn't happen but for the most part it happens kind of normally and when we replace cells and when we make a new copy of the cell they keep all the same wielded parts together so that we can we can make sure that the copy of a cell it does the exact same job as it's predecessor. So the daughters do the same thing as the mother, or you can use the father analogy, but again, same, same problem. Where this gets really interesting is we have a lot of decisions that are made where epigenetics comes into play uh, that you see play out in real world. Um, one of the more interesting ones that goes through a lot of this biology that we just talked about is calico cats. Calico cats are calico because they have made a pattern based off of hair color and some other genes. Um, what's interesting is all those genes are on the X chromosome. So which X chromosome you use, whether you got that from mom or dad, decides the color of that cell or those, those grouping of cells. And so again, it's that, that conversation between cells leads to a decision being made within a cell, which then leads to a, a permanence. And that's how you get the different patterns. Similarly with zebra stripes, um, taking it to humans, similarly, that's how we get the different tones for different colors. It's this combination of the epigenetics and regulation of melatonin, melatonin within your skin and some other things that are, that are related to it. But these aren't, these aren't binary decisions, it's not on or off. It's, I need, if I'm going to be dark skinned, I'm going to have 100 copies. If I'm gonna be um, light skinned, I'm gonna have two, three. So it's this gradient problem. That's really the value of epigenetics and all this chromatin remodeling stuff. And that's that's a major part of, of our understanding of, of gene expression and how we, you know, measure and modulate genes is really the Swiss cheese model. 
this idea that we have a layer here and a layer here. So we go, you know, going from the, we have the chromatin, and then once we, we push the chromatin around so that we have the genes that we want available, we have the rate at which RNA polymerase can get through the mRNA through all the non-coding and the UTR and, and all the complexity there. And then we have the UTRs themselves, which turn, turn into these, these regulatory regions because they, they provide areas where you can send extra messages. You can send messages about the message. You can let the rest of the cell machinery know if it's something that we should use fast, something that we should use slow, something that is part of a decision that should only be used if X, Y, or Z happens in the cell. So you can do all this through the UTRs, which gives you another layer. The UTRs also give you the how many copies should I make problem. So we know that from a single mRNA template, we can make multiple copies of a protein. We don't have, to, it's not a once and done. It can be a multiple, multiple read as it were. And we do this by having the UTRs tell the cell, keep this copy, don't throw it out after you've made after you've used the template. And this is one of the more interesting things, and this is where I wanna kinda of conclude this conversation. This is part of the, all this background, all these things is how uh, we as a scientific group knew that mRNA could be co-opted to make vaccines and potentially make them safer, faster, and easier to manufacture because we, we had this basic level of understanding, which scientists then use to say, okay, so if I take the, the language that the immune system cells use to make the antibodies that protect us from a virus, can I convince it to make the antibodies by just giving it a chunk of virus inside of it, rather than having to create the protein, hope that the protein survives, and really, you know, can I increase the, the likelihood that the right cell that can make an antibody, that can make, make a person immune from a disease, gets to the right place and makes the right antibody? And so that's where we're at and how, that's where I want to end this conversation. So one of the reasons that we have some confidence in mRNA vaccines is because of this baseline information that has been done over the last 20, 30 50-ish years by people who are not immunologists. They're, they're basic cell biologists, they're molecular biologists, they're all this bigger group that kind of trickled upwards that allowed, you, allowed immunologists to say, huh, there's a really complex machinery here, but I know if I push and prod at these two places that the immune system cell that I need to make an antibody will do only what I'm thinking that should do to create a vaccine, to create an antibody, which is what we're doing when we vaccinate somebody. And with that, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time, um, where I will go completely geeky and we'll talk about how you actually pack the nucleus with all this this material. With that, I thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Through Scientist Eyes. My name is Chris Winder, and I hope you have a great day, great week. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.